You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Today on Fox and Hops episode number 10, I sit down with the one, the only, the hardest working metalhead in Montreal, Jason Rockman. He's the singer of Slaves on Dope, and he's also a DJ at Shome. Me being a kid, I grew up listening to Shome. It's like the one radio station that has, you know, some rock songs here in Montreal. Uh, it was the my go-to station and still is most of the time when I climb into the a car or something and I don't have, a, you know, in a way to hook up my phone to play what I want to hear. So I, I turned to Shome still to this day. Growing up, I, I always looked up to Jason. Um, we became friends a few years back. Um, he graciously accepted to do this interview. So very excited to share what Jason had to say with all of you. Here it is. Vox and Hops, episode Episode number 10. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Hey, how's it going, everyone? I'm here with Jason Rockman, the hardest working metalhead in Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. How are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, it's it's fun to hang out because I don't get to see you often. But every time I do see you, I'm happy. <laughs> it's true, true. We've known each other a long time. I'll tell yeah. you my first memory of you. Okay. Snow Jam. Oh, my God. At at uh, Molson Stadium. That's right. How old were you? I was just my first semester in CJEP. Okay. I okay, remember so you guys were hanging out, handing out these like little cards. Yeah. Yeah. The baseball cards. Promoing the album, yep. I assume. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I remember going back to CJEP and like I had met you and like looking at the picture <laughs> <laughs> and being like you know and you know and, um, looking up to you. Oh God. And, uh, so it's it's nice to to be able to sit here uh, and yeah. hang out with you on a, on a Tuesday morning. Well, the 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 first time that I uh, I think the first time that I I met you I think was I saw you play and you had that wonderful long hair oh. and then I found out that you liked um, and then I found out that you liked as my dog that you liked um, Faith No More Mike Patton and I think that's what I, I was like oh this guy likes Mike Patton and he's a good singer and like he's not at all like the guy he is on stage which is like me because I'm totally a different person like I'll go up on stage and the guy's like oh that guy's a total dick but I'm not I'm like soft spoken and into all this different d- different things that people wouldn't think I'm into so I think you're, you're kind of like that <laughs> From what I, from what I've from what I've seen, I uh, <laughs> it's it's a therapy for me. Yeah, yeah. I uh, you know it's it's it, I, everything. I have it all inside me somewhere. That's okay. That's Jason's dog. That's he'll, my dog. He'll he'll be putting in his his thoughts throughout the whole thing. <laughs> and uh, I use metal as a cathartic experience. Yeah, yeah. And I feel much more zen afterwards. Yeah, t- totally. I mean, I know what you mean because when when I would go and when I would play and, and we would be. That's probably the only thing I miss about touring is when, when we would play and we would be, you know, 15, 20 shows into a tour, there was just that calmness that would, that would be there. And it, you're in this, it was just nice. Everything locked in. Everything was, everything was, was good. It was good. I don't know about you, but when I'm on the road, I don't listen to metal. I never, I mean, honestly, and I get so many people that send me records and they think, you know, I mean, cause I guess I am a metalhead, but I like so many other things. Um, and I like so many other styles of music and I, I, I actually never listen to metal. Like, really? I mean, I do. Um, but I'm, but I don't listen to metal a lot, not a lot less than people would think. I mean, I'd, I'd much rather sit down and put on an Ellen John record. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I just, but I, but I, lo- I mean, I always keep up to date on what's going on and, and, um, I, you know, when a big metal record comes out, I still celebrate it and I'm excited and, but I'm very selective with my metal now and I, I, 
Let's give people a rundown of, of what Jason Rockman does now. Uh, you are the singer of Slaves on Dope. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, I mean, that's that's probably the thing I've been doing the longest. Um, I'm, um, I work at Shome. I'm DJ at Shome. I'm coming up on nine years this, this fall. Well, actually, December 2nd will be nine years I've been at Shome, so almost a decade. Um, I work with Comic-Con, Montreal and Ottawa and Quebec. And I work with Heavy Montreal and do some stuff with Eventco. Uh, I do voice work. I do. I do all kinds of things. I'm, I'm a pretty busy guy. Yeah, I always say everything you post. I'm like, how does this guy do yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I there's. I, I'm really lucky because I found a way to do everything I do. I like. I don't do anything that. There's very few things that I dread having to go do. Um, and that's where I wanted to get to. I said to myself, as long as everything I do, I enjoy, then I'm 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 winning. You know, not to not to quote Charlie Sheen, but I feel like I'm winning <laughs> because I really I think it's important. I think you know, you get one pass through on, in this thing. And, and if you can enjoy what you're doing and, and, and wake up every day and not have to go like, Oh, I mean, there are aspects of certain things and, and everybody goes through funks, but I don't, I don't, there's nothing I do that I dislike. And if I don't like doing something, I won't do it. That's very lucky of you. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, I also set myself up. I, I, I learned through trial and error of, you know, I spent years doing things I didn't like doing and, um, but yeah, I'm very, very fortunate to get to do what I like to do. But I, 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 I believe in luck, but I also believe in, in positive thinking. And if you, if you put the work in, you put the effort in and you say yes to things when you might not want to say yes to things and, and, and do certain things. Not everything is, is necessarily a, exactly where you want to be, but sometimes if you push, you'll get to that point where you want to be. And I think I'm at a point right now and knock on wood, uh, I hope it stays this way that I'm, I'm happy with everything I do. You're extremely fortunate and uh, yeah. hardworking. So you deserve to be where you are. Yeah. yeah in but, my opinion. I mean, there, there is, there, yeah, there is luck involved, I, I, but I don't, I just think sometimes people will fall in the, the rest on their laurels and they'll say, Oh, well, he's lucky. But mm. there, it, it's a combination of a lot of things. You're a hustler too. Yes, absolutely. hundred <laughs> percent. I don't know when you sleep. Yeah. It's about five, six hours. Okay. Yeah. You're still and in I good know. shape. I try to, yeah, I try. Yeah. I, mean, I do enjoy things, the food, <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I try to, I try to have, I try to keep things balanced and it's not always easy. It's not always easy. Speaking of enjoying things, one of my main passions is beer. Yeah. Which now. is, which is interesting, <laughs> which is interesting. <laughs> I never I'm thought here. I would be doing a beer podcast. So just to, to put that into context, uh, can you tell me what your very first experience with beer was like? My first experience with beer was probably when I was about 12, probably about 12. That's the earliest memory I have of drinking was when I was, I think around, before I was 13, when I was about 12 years old, i my, my dad at the time was was um was dating a lady who had an old had had a son and in my in my i guess from about 12 to about well in, in my into my early 20s he was my stepbrother you know they were as long as they were together and and they were together way beyond that but um he was very influential in my like I lived with him from about age 12 to about age 16 17 and he, I I had my first drinks with him I think it was Christmas time and it was like oh look he's getting you know he's he's drinking and he's you know he's He's, uh, he's acting silly and oh, it's cute. And I think with me, it, it wasn't necessarily, um, my, my palate for beer developed later on. Um, but I mean, there's a whole other side to it too. You know, it wasn't always, it wasn't a very necessarily an enjoyable experience, but when I did drink, cause I don't drink anymore. When I did drink, um, I really, really enjoyed beer. Uh, but I don't have those, my memories with alcohol in terms of, of beer were more when I started, I probably when I was about 18, 
17, 18, when I started developing more of a palate for beer. Um, I think my early, I, I remember drinking Bredore because it had more alcohol in it and it got me drunk or fa- it dropped me drunk faster. Um, but my palate with beer, like I was around when St. Ambroise first came on the scene. That's probably the last time I drank was around the St. Ambroise Boreal first coming in the, the microbrewery scene in Quebec. So they were, and they were, I think they were pretty much pioneers. Yeah, Unibrew, yeah. St. Albois, Boreal. Right. Probably were, the biggest of the, of the, the small, uh, big microbrews at this point. Yeah, because the, the, uh, I remember when they came uh, they came on, on uh, came around, it was it was a big deal. Before that, I mean, uh, 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 you know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a recovered alcoholic, so. How know, long have you been? 26 years. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't really mess with beer and sobriety until I was about 20 years sober. Um, and when I mean mess with beer, try a non-alcoholic, because I was very worried it was going to be a trigger. When did you realize that alcohol was an issue in your life? Uh, well, I stopped when I was 21. Okay. But I mean, I knew I had, a, I, I, I knew deep down I had a problem, okay. you know, probably a few years before that. Because you were just in well, excess? Just drinking or? every day. Okay. And, and way too much. And it wasn't, uh, you know, I was young too. I mean, I, I that's, I, that's what I find very interesting is that you when realized, I, stopped, I, I realized that at a young age when most people were just, a lot of people would, if they were in a, in a structured home would be experimenting with drinking. Cause exactly. a lot of people will start when they're out of the house, when they're in, in college and you know, not very many people are drinking in high school. So it's almost like very mature of you. Yeah. That I look at as being very lucky. If I, if it had any kind of luck or, um, any kind of, if I was, if I was, if, if I was, um, guided in any way, however you want to call it, if it was a spiritual awakening, if it was, uh, whatever it was, I, I had that, um, at 21 and I was very lucky. Did you have people around you that nobody told me I was, you just knew it. I just had, yeah, I had had a series of bad experiences and I just said, okay, I think, I think I really should do something about my drinking. Wow. And I don't even know where that the thought came from to call um, Alcoholics Anonymous, but I did, and it was the best thing I ever did. And do you still go to meetings nowadays? Yeah, I I, I try to. I, I'm. It's funny because I I always have people in my life that I work with because if you know anything about it, about AA, it's a twelve step program, and basically your last step is to carry the message to somebody else. It's, and um, so I'm always working with people that have issues with, with, with substance, uh, uh, you know, depending what, where, where they're at. But I always surround myself with people that need help because that's, that's what keeps me sober. So I don't get to go to as many meetings and my job really screwed that up because I work seven to midnight mm-hmm. and most of the meetings I would go to would be in the evening. So a lot of the groups that I would go to, I, I couldn't go to anymore. So I don't go as much as I'd like to, but I mean, I'm 26 years in, uh, I carry it in my heart. It's part of my life. You know, it's like my way of life. It's like my, my code of conduct. So it's pretty much ingrained in me, but I, uh, I try to go as much as I can. And when I get to go, it's a treat. Do you, when you surround yourself, do you mean that you're a sponsor to people? Yeah, exactly. I I, uh, have a couple of guys I sponsor. Um, yeah, like right now I've got three or four people I'm working with and it's, you know, when I'm at various different stages, you know, I've got one guy that I've been sponsoring for 25 years. He's my best friend. I've got another guy who's just thinking about coming around. And I've got one guy that's about four months in and another guy who's been slipping for a few years, but he's in and out. Do you still have relationships with your sponsors? Yeah, we'll have one. I, my, my, I still have my sponsor who's a really, really old friend of mine, Peter. Uh, and he just gave me my, my, my 26 year uh, cake. You get it like every year you get your cake and your that's chair. so cool. Yeah. yeah. And what's really cool is if, um, are you, are you, are you into punk, like old school punk rock? I'm not overly, but I'm interested in everything. Okay, well, do you know the band TSOL? No. Okay, so they're like an old 
punk band from from LA. They were really influential, like around the Black Flag, like that whole time of, uh, of punk rock. You know, like all, if you ever if you're into Rollins mm-hmm. and you hear him talk about the Black Flag touring days and when the and Misfits and all that, like it was T- with TSOL. TSOL were part of that, and um, the lead singer of TSOL, who's been sober since like '89, Jack Grisham. He's a really really cool guy. Cool guy to follow on on social media too. Very opinionated, but I love his whole approach to sobriety. And he actually sent me a 26 year coin, oh, yeah? which was really really cool. I got it in the mail the other day. He's like, I'm sorry it's late, but here you go. <laughs> I was pretty pretty happy about that. So do you find you have a more of like an in depth connection with people who are also sober recovering alcoholics um, i mean i think there's a, there you, there's there's definitely a um there definitely is a connection I, I i think just because we speak the same language and what i well i shouldn't say what i love about this disease but what, what's what's unique about this disease well like like every other disease it doesn't pinpoint who it's going to attack it doesn't it, it, it you know people alcoholics are all from different walks of life um, all shape sizes so it's it's um it, it doesn't discriminate. And I think what I love about, about AA is that it, it really, um, you, you'll get in a room and you'll have all walks of life, all different kinds of people. And it doesn't matter what religion you are, it doesn't matter what you believe, your common bond is that struggle to stay sober. And, it, and it's a beautiful thing because it really, you know, the whole basis of, of that program is, is based on communication. And I think it's so important. So it's a recipe for success too for me and every other areas of my life, you know. How did you, because most people use like alcohol or substances in these situations to cope with stuff, to, you know, to, to mask something. How did you cope without the alcohol? Um, th- well, that's what the 12 steps help with. You know, they give you, they really give you um, a, a blueprint on, on what to do. It's like, it's like a guidebook, okay. you know, on how to deal with those things. And there's different steps to the program. There's different, you know, you, you, you have to. You have to learn how to, you have basically how, how, learn how to live without alcohol in your life. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I have this saying where they say, you know, if you look at the word alcoholism, you take away the alcohol and you still have the isms and that's the stuff you have to work on. Okay. Yeah. It's, 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 it's noticing certain character, character traits, certain, certain things that certain things that you need to work on, um, in your life to not get to that point where you, you, you feel like you have to drink. Yeah. And it's, it's fairly simple, but at the same time when that obsession's there, it's, you know, it's like any other kind of obsession. And I, I see my alcoholism come up in different areas of my life okay. all the time and I have to keep it in check, you know, but it's never a moment where like, you're like, I want to take a drink. It's just, you're seeing no. the old s- symptoms or causes. Yeah. I mean, I recognize like, oh yeah, okay. I see what's going on here. I see mm-hmm. what you're trying to do. Well, that's not going to work. Like and, some people use it because they're shy and they yeah. want to be more sociable. That's what it was yeah. for me at, at first when I, I realized when I had a couple of drinks, I was like, oh man, this is, this takes the edge off and I can go talk to that pretty girl and I'm not mm. scared anymore. And so it's uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely learning to live without having to, to rely on that. And, um, I mean, because of the age that I drank too, and I stopped a lot of that was just normal teenage stuff too. So it's hard sometimes. I mean, I could very easily convince myself that, Oh, you could have a beer now. I mean, come on, it's been 26 years. You're like, you're a 40, you know, seven year old man. Of course you can drink. I mean, come on, you know, go have a couple of nice beers. But, and that was the biggest issue I had with, with trying a non-alcoholic beer was I was like, well, this might be, this could be a slippery slope. But it hasn't been nope. for you yet. Nope. No, nope. not at all. And I, I, I remember specifically being with my wife and, and her saying like, well, have one and see how you are. And, 
And I did. And I, I remember, from what I remember, I think it was a Bex. It was a Bex uh, non-alcoholic. And I tried it and I was, was like, oh, okay. And the, the thing is, after two, I don't want to drink any more of them. Yeah, yeah. And what I really was drinking it for was very similar to why I smoke cigars. Um, and I don't smoke a lot of cigars anymore. And I love cigars. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I have to be careful because if I buy a box of cigars, I'll know I have a box of cigars in my humidor. And I'll be like, oh, it's a nice day outside. Let me go have a cigar. But my whole rule with cigars was if I have, I have to have a, a good hour to sit down and I have to be with someone. It has to be, it's like a social aspect. Kind of like when people going and having a couple of drinks at the pub. But, you know, the difference with a guy like you who could probably go have a couple of drinks at the pub versus a guy like me who will drink until there's no more alcohol left. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, it's not, it happens sometimes. Yeah, but. absolutely. And, and but my whole thing with, with non-alcoholic beer, why I like it is that I liked beer. I like the taste of beer, but I don't want to get drunk. Mm-hmm. I have zero interest in getting drunk. I have zero interest in taking, you know, it taking me to another place and, and escaping. I just like the taste of beer. And that was the biggest struggle I had was like, do I do it? And I, I talked to quite a few people that are, are sober and, it's it's really up to every you know I have guys in in AA that'll tell me you're insane you're like you're playing with fire like why would you do that but I get it I mean I get where where they're coming from you know a guy who's new in the program I would never tell him oh well you know here drink six of these they have no alcohol in them and they'll it'll keep but there's people that I know that have gotten sober and that's what they've used so whatever works for you I would never work with someone that I'm sponsoring and tell them to go drink non alcoholic beer ever. I would say that you're an idiot to do that. That's too close. It's absolutely too close. But when I got into AA, I never, you know, there's a say in the program, they talk about try some controlled drinking. You know, if you, if you have someone that's new, tell them to go out, try controlled drinking, see how they do with it. I never did, but I applied that to non-alcoholic beer. I said, I'll, I'll try one and I'll see what happens. And I was okay. And I don't obsess over it. I don't need to have it in the fridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had people over for the the Canelo Golovkin two fight. Usually in the past, you know, because I've been drinking them for about six years, I would say oh, I'll get a couple of non-alcoholic beers, and I was like, oh, just have coffee, I'm mm-hmm. good. or I'll have kombucha, which I, I prefer. But I do like non-alcoholic beer. But now what's end up happening is that some of the ones that I tried at the beginning, my palate's changed, and I find they taste like absolute crap. Mm-hmm. Like the Bex, I'll have one. And I'll be like, this is shit compared to what I've tried since. That being said. Yeah. I brought some beers for Jason to take. Yes. From uh, La Barasserie Le Bacale, which is from Drummondville. Yeah. The, I brought two. Okay. You know, we'll just sip our way through. It's, it's early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's not alcoholic, it still messes with my brain. So yeah. I brought a Découverte IPA, which is a non-alcoholic IPA. Which um, they said when they discovered that they could figure it out, it's a perfect uh, symbiosis between uh, the biting freshness of a good U.S. IPA and the previously tasteless universe of non-alcoholic beer. <laughs> well, you know what? It smells f- so fruity too. It's it's still good. It's like because I'm a big IPA hophead. It's 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 you know it's very good tropical. It, it tastes honestly from like a compared to like a normal IPA a little bit more watered down, but it okay. has to be at this point because there's no alcohol. Right. I what I like about this is that when you look at it. Um, you don't feel like someone just went into the back of 
the, the bar fridge <laughs> and found that 0.5 that was that's been there for three years and mm-hmm. no one orders i mean it feels like someone put some effort into this that's it there's a there's a big passion from le bacale because they're putting out like a whole series of these non-alcoholics and they're all well done and it's really hard to make a non-alcoholic beer it takes extra steps yeah because basically what they do is they get the beer to where they would normally bottle it yeah and then they have to boil it down yeah because alcohol boils at a lower temperature than water yeah and they'll extract that and then because they've done that they have to when they're repackaging it because the yeast is no longer a part of it yeah they have to inject co2 into the canning so that it still has some carbonation to it that's what it is okay i what i find really impressive is the um is the color because most of the time, and I've tried, I've never seen a non-alcoholic IPA. Yeah, this is the first I've, I've seen too. Yeah, I've seen a lot of, um, I guess you call them laggers. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like now you'll, you're seeing, it seems like every company, big company is, because it's becoming more and more popular, which is good for a guy like me because I can taste different ones. But most of the decent ones I've tried have been German ones. Okay. Um, the Germans have what I've tried has been pretty impressive. Uh, so there's one company in Portugal called Superbock. Yeah. 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 They've got a stout that is phenomenal. Oh really? I'll put yeah, on my list which was to, really, to find. And it was, and it's pretty inexpensive too. Was I, cause I, you know, they, they can run you, you know, they can run you back. I mean, it's not that expensive, but when you, in comparison to in comparison to others, a normal beer, let's say. Yeah. But I've, I've found that one under two bucks, really? which, I, which I was really surprised. It's a smaller bottle, but, um, but it's pretty good. It was it was it was very very good. It was probably the best one that I've tried be since this company because this company is pretty kick ass. Where do you think you'd be now if you hadn't stopped drinking? Oh God, I don't know. Probably dead or in jail. Really? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I definitely would not be where I'm at. Uh, I was always a hard worker, and I always w- wanted more out of life. Like I wasn't one of these people that just was a- accepted just sitting on my ass and and you know let's see what like I always went out and got what I wanted. Um, and I don't mean that in a selfish way. I mean, I would always get out and if I, if I wanted something out of life, I would, I, I knew I had to work to go get it. And I think that was because of the, you know, like my dad had a really good work ethic. Um, I learned a lot from him when I was young of, of, of seeing someone get up and, and working hard and, and, and going to work and, and taking care of things. So I had that around me and, um, but I don't know. I mean, I really don't think I would be where I'm at. That's, I, I, I know I wouldn't be. Because I would have probably made some really bad decisions. <clears throat> Definitely. And burned some bridges. And oh, yeah. 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 You know, those bridges I find in the work environment that we're both in is the most important thing to maintain. You never know yeah. when that human connection that you've had from the past will come and serve you positively in the future. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because I was just talking to my wife about that this this morning, how being nice to people goes so far. It really goes a long way, especially if it's genuine, you know, if you, and if you, if you like people and if you understand how human beings work, everybody at the end of the day just wants to be liked and loved. Everybody just wants to be validated. They just want to be made, you know, it's nice when someone gives you a pat on the back and says, you know, good job. It's nice when someone is, is kind. And I find a lot of the times people not being that way doesn't necessarily mean that they're mean people. It's just, there's, there's all these fucking walls that are up, you know, there's walls, there's, there's, um, there's airs that people have sometimes that aren't necessarily what you think. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is fear-based. And I think the biggest thing I got from sobriety was learning to not be fearful. You know, like fear will stop you from doing so many things. And it's the silliest thing sometimes. But you just got to push through that. And, and when you can really learn how to deal with your fear 
and and not let it rule you, great things can happen. I, I really believe that. The fear of rejection. Is- fear of rejection, fear of, um, yeah, fear of not fitting in. And, you know, sometimes people will act goofy because they're, they're uncomfortable. They're scared. And, and it's normal. I mean, everybody's like that. And, and it's funny when you're not that kind of person and you see someone acting like that. And it's just like, uh, instead of judging that person, I'd rather be like, yeah, they're probably just a little uncomfortable and they, they just need to come out of their skin. And especially being somebody that talks to a lot of people. Yeah. I yeah, see yeah. that a lot, especially with bands. I mean, you know, you're in a band, you know, when you're in an interview and you've got your, you know, couple of guys in the band and you're doing an interview with someone and everyone starts getting goofy and, and super sarcastic and it's funny, but at the same time, sometimes it's like, okay, guys, like enough. You it know? comes across wrong. In the long yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it can come across as, oh, these guys are dicks, but they're not. They're just, so either they're uncomfortable or they're, you know, you know, tired layovers, drunk. Yeah. Hungover. Exactly. But it's, um, but it's interesting to, um, to see people that, um, that fall into that rut and they don't know how to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And then it leaves people with a certain opinion of them and they're not like that at all. Yeah. You don't want that to happen. Yeah. What happens? It yeah. happens all the time, but you know, there's, and at some point you can't control what people think, but I just like, I like the idea of trying to, to, to let people feel, give people a, a comfortable enough environment where they can feel they can be themselves. And that's my, that's kind of my goal when I meet people is, and especially when I interview people is I want them to feel comfortable. And I want, I want them to, I want to relate to them. And so, and it, it's tough. It's a challenge because if you talk to a lot of different people, you'll get a lot of different attitudes, a lot of different, you know, it really depends on, you, you never know how you're going to get somebody when they're in front of you. And it's, it, it's interesting to see how that, how have you grown as an interviewer over um, the course of your career? I mean, I think I've grown a lot, but I still think I have a lot more to grow. <laughs> and it's never, uh, there's, there's certain, there's certain guys that, that I look to as, um, as people that are really good at it. It's, it's unfortunate because before Charlie Rose was, um, um, kind of outed as in the whole me too movement as being, um, as being a bit of a creep. I really, really looked up to him cause I thought he had a really great interviewing style and I still do. I think he was a great interviewer. He's just probably let the power get to his head a bit. But, um, guys like Charlie Rose, guys like George Strombolopoulos, who I think George is fantastic. Uh, they're, they're real. I take a lot of cues from them. I think it's important to, to never think that you you've got this because just when you think you've got this is when you don't have it at all. It's like, I got this. No, it's like the, I mean, I, I, am confident in my abilities, but at the same time, I know that I, you know, when I make a mistake or when I, when I screw something up, I'm hard on myself. I'm really hard on myself. And it always happens when it's the biggest interviews. <laughs> I screwed up when I interviewed Bono and Larry Mullen Jr. from, from U2. I screwed up when I did the interview. I started it off and I was like, well, I'm sitting down here with Larry Mullen Jr. and the edge from U2. And I kept talking and Larry stopped me. He says, you just called Bono the edge. Oh. And I was just like, oh. And I, and I, and I tried to defuse it and I was like, oh my God, I'm a fucking idiot. And then they <laughs> laughed. And at the end, I, I have this thing where if I interview an artist, I like to get my vinyl signed. Mm-hmm. And I brought a couple of records for them to sign and Bono signed it as the end. Did he? One That's of them, so yeah. funny. That's so funny. <laughs> and he laughed about it. So did that like just throw you? Were you frazzled? Uh, it, what it did was it immediately was like a slap in the face and it brought me right back into the moment. And it made me say, whoa, whatever you're doing now, stop doing it. Mm-hmm. But it was, it, it, it made me very fearful, but I realized you got so caught up in your fear and you got caught so caught up. You forgot what you're doing. You're just talking to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. And it, it was a huge lesson for me. Um, Cause sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll be talking, uh, did I just say that guy's name wrong? Did I just, and I, and I didn't, but my mind will start to, to fuck with me. 
It's like and, that cycle, uh, the, yeah. the spiral of darkness, I call yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you don't want that to happen, but it's happened. It's happened a couple of times. I've had, I've had some little screw ups here and there. It's like on stage. If I mess up a part, then I start focusing on it and yeah. then I keep focusing and then I mess up the next line and then yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. spiral of darkness. Yeah. I don't, I, I mean, I'm, I'm such a goof that I don't care. I, I've had, I, I've, I, I've, I've screwed up a couple of times. I've looked at Kevin and he, he'll look at me like, what the fuck did you just say? Like, and, or I'll forget a part and I'll be like, blah, 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 and he'll look at me and laugh. But I'm also lucky because I'm in an environment where I'm not going to, you know, it's not going to, we're not going to sit down and have this big band meeting. Like you screwed up. Like I, it, it, if you're in that kind of an environment, obviously you're going to feel like, you know, if you're a perfectionist, we've gotten to a point where, I mean, we don't play as much as we used to, but we've done enough in the past to know that it doesn't really matter. How did you start playing in bands? I started, um, I basically, I've always liked music ever since I'm a kid. I've always been obsessed with music. Um, did you grow up in a house with music all around yeah, you instruments yeah. around you? Not instruments, just music fans. Um, and I grew up in the seventies, so seventies and eighties, which were great times for music. Uh, my parents listened to a lot of folk, uh, a lot of R and B, so I had a lot of Motown, a lot of singer-songwriter stuff, a lot of Beatles. So I always liked music. I always liked melody. I never thought... I used to dream in, about being in a band, like when I was a kid, like fantasize about it. And obviously, you know, being a Kiss fan too and growing up in that time when Kiss was huge and going out, you know, as Paul Stanley for Halloween and stuff. And really? Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I'm not going to sit here and say I wanted to be Gene Simmons. Like, I wanted to be Paul Stanley. I thought Paul was cool. <laughs> That's a throwback Thursday picture that should come out. Yeah, I know. I wish I had that picture. I had, like, I remember, I specifically remembered being, dressing up as Kiss and having a broom handle as the stock, as the, as the, you know, the headstock of the guitar and, and the body being cut out of cardboard and going out as Paul Stanley. And I had the shoulder movement and everything. I was like really into it. I don't think I did the little rose tattoo, but, um, but I was a big Kiss fan and I was, I was, I, I, my, my parents were really enthusiastic about music and I remember being, I think I, I had a huge, massive poster of Bowie uh, as a Thin White Duke when I was probably 11 in my, like a huge one, like one of those big European ones you would get at Dutchies, like a big, big poster. And, um, so I really, like I had pretty good music taste for, for a kid and I, and I liked everything. I really, really liked everything. Like from ABBA to, I mean, my mom loved ABBA. Like, so I had a lot of music around. Um, but the first person that gave me the confidence to sing was really, I was in theater school and, uh, I was trying to get in one of our first year studios that we were doing. I didn't really get a good, a big part, but the director gave me this Elizabethan song, Greensleeves to sing. And I sang that and he was like, you've got a really nice voice. You've got a beautiful voice. And so I was like, oh, cool. And then I ended up getting into a band with some guys who we were doing covers and I just liked singing more than acting because singing, I could drink, I could be in a band. I got more girls. There wasn't as many rehearsals. Acting was, you know, theater was really intense and very, you know, regimented. And um, so that was the switch. I, once I once I got up on stage and I, I played my first show, uh, it was I was like, wow, okay, this is this is this is where it's at. When did Slaves on Dope transform from that band into Slaves on Dope? Well, the first band I was in was in a band called Destiny's Daughter. And, uh, the guitar player from that band and I wanted to go in a different direction and it was like 1991, 92. So I remember him and I went to the first Lollapalooza, uh, second Lollapalooza together in Boston and it was Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, uh, Ice Cube, uh, Jesus and Mary Chain, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Ministry. It was a really, really good year and it was like 
like Pearl Jam was on 10. Soundgarden was touring on Bad Motor Finger. Chili Peppers were touring on Blood Sugar Sex Magic. So it was like a really intense, you know, formative year for me in terms of, of, of you know. And I was a big Faith No More fan too. Like I really got into Faith No More on, on Angel Dust. And I had previously gotten the real thing. But I remember buying Angel Dust in Boston. And I was like, wow. I was at Newberry Comics and I bought it. I was visiting a friend there. And I remember buying Angel Dust and hating it. Really? Putting it, well, compared, well, it's one of my favorite records now, but compared to the real thing, I was like, what are they doing? This is like, what? Like, where are those, like, you know, those hooky, you know, big choruses? And it took me a while, but then I, and, and now that, that was kind of like the benchmark for me of knowing when I really hate a record that I'm supposed to love at the beginning, it's going to end up being a record that I love. Mm-hmm. Cause I didn't get it at all. I was like, what is this? And then it was the first record what made me realize sometimes you need to get into a record and it's okay. Like you have to, you have to go, okay, I've got to, I've got to give this more time. I can't just dismiss this right away. And it was really between faith no more and that whole Lollapalooza was, was what made me want to do something different than what we were doing. And, um, we ended up finding Kevin, Pat and Lenny, who were in another band, and we just kind of fused together. We were a five-piece. And the guitar player that I started the first band with, he left. I think we did our first show in Toronto. He came. We played the Cameron House. And we did that whole experience. We went and did our first show in Toronto, came back, and he quit. He was like, I don't want to do this. This is too much work. <laughs> he was just a pussy. Um, and that was it. I mean, he wasn't, wasn't a pussy. He just, it was, he just wanted to go in a different direction. What one-off gigs are annoying. Yeah. One-off. Well, I mean, listen, I don't, I don't think, I think he just kind of, you know, he ended up starting other bands and doing other stuff, but Slaves on Dope really took flight after that. We, we, we had been together for a bit, and, but that's when we really started to, to, you know, put the gears in. And from my memory of the history of Slaves on Dope, it was a showmless free concert. That was the biggest thing that we had gotten before we, we moved to the States. Yeah, that that's was a huge, right. huge break for us. You guys won Showmless Spree, which was a battle of the bands, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. And that's when you met Too Tall, I want to say, as well. Yeah, Too Tall and I met. Um, we submitted. I remember submitting for the Showmless Spree with that old band. Okay. And remember sitting around hoping we would be in the... Because back then, you know, you'd everyone would submit, and then on air, they would announce the top 12. Oh, really? Okay. Compete. That's interesting. So I remember sitting by the radio and waiting for the top 12 and um, not getting in. And I remember that year that we did get it and hearing our name, we were so happy. And then we got, you know, Too Tall contacted us and we came in and did an interview for Made in Canada and, and then we battled, battled it out. It was like a battle of the bands. And when we finally won that thing, um, it was huge for us. I mean, we were, we, we got to play, we played Shom's 25th anniversary uh, at the Spectrum and it was, we were opening up for Kim Mitchell and it was broadcast live on air and it was a huge deal for us. And, um, and that gave us, you know, that gave us the, the confidence to go out and we toured across Canada and, and then we toured Canada 10 times until we finally said, look, there's only so much we can do. And we had a manager at the time who managed, who used to manage the tea party and he was working with a couple of other artists and he had said to us, you know, if you want to make this a go, you should really move to LA because the music you're doing, that's where it's happening. What album was this on? Uh, pardon? What album were you touring? Because you had you had two. We had okay, so we put out an EP in '94 called Sober. Okay, and then we put out a full length called One Good Turn Deserves Another, and that we did through Just in Time, which was like a jazz label here. And then we we did an EP that we were taking with us to California. We said we're going to take this EP and we're going to move to California with it. And okay, so inches from the main line was much after LA. That was that was that was in LA. That was the okay. our, that was the album. That was like our biggest release that we did. That was the one that we were on Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne's record label. 
And then when did the transition switch from you singing and to, to screaming? screaming? Yeah. Um, probably around 97 okay. was when we always had little elements of it, small elements of it, but it would be like just for dramatic effect. The Mike Patton. The Mike Patton. Influence. Thing. Yeah. So I think really when we got, when I got Deftones Adrenaline and Around the Fur, big influence, Sepultura Roots, forget about it. I mean, and the first Soulfly record, like the, the roots in the Soulfly record were huge influences on me big time and Fear Factory too, because Burton was the first guy to, to really sing and scream. Nobody was doing it before that. Mike was doing it a little bit, but Burton was the first guy. Like if anybody invented screamo or emo, it's Burton hmm. and nobody, he doesn't get enough credit for it because he really sang and screamed. He didn't. You know, he, he would sing his choruses and he would scream his verses or, or vice versa. And nobody, I mean, you know, nobody really did that before. That's true. Yeah. So, and I don't think he gets enough credit for it. I think people kind of forget, but he was, um, yeah, I mean, uh, team manufacturer was just like, and obsolete, like, whoa, like huge records for me. So that kind of, you know, made us and corn, I mean, corn too, <laughs> you know, it was, it was all that time. That the, that first you know that first wave of new metal that really made us go whoa we want to we want to try something a little different. Uh, how did you discover you could scream? I I think I just tried it. You know I used to do it live a lot. I used to scream and Mike Patton. I mean Mike would you know you would see live videos of him and he would just be scream. You know so like I think when I heard Surprise You're Dead, that really was like, but it was more like a screaming wasn't really a full full out scream it was more like a hardcore scream but it was really max like when i heard max screaming you know doing roots and like i was like whoa like i want to try this and i think i just tried it and you just worked out in the jam room yeah on stage on the jam room yeah how do you keep your your voice healthy as your i don't really scream as much as i used to i mean like i listened back like we did an anniversary show for inches because it was the 15th anniversary of it and we did a show at turbo house where we did the album from front to back and we rehearsed it and it was rough. It was hard. It was really hard. It was hard. Like I can't scream like that anymore. I, 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 I can, but I don't want to. It would be work to get back into oh, that yeah. shape. I mean, you know, as you know, cause you're, you scream. Um, it's hard. It's hard. And I really want to do different stuff with music. Like I would love to just do a singer songwriter record. Really? Oh yeah. Just you with a guitar. Well, I can't play guitar, but, but me, a me, guitar and, me and a good guitarist, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd like to do, yeah. I mean, I want to do different stuff. I, I love music so much and there's so many different things i like to do that's why when we started doing stuff with with dmc yeah that's super interesting stuff and all that that was really for me it was the most fun that we stuff that we've done in a long time and i like doing Kev, kevin's really adamant about us doing these covers eps and we did one a few years back and we have another one coming out this fall with uh six or seven covers and, and i like doing that it's fun but my my whole attitude about music is very different now it's not a job for me anymore it's really uh it's it's all about fun so you moved to L.A. because I sort of cut you off before. Yeah. I want to get back to that. You moved to L.A. and how did you end up on, you know, Ozzy, Sharon Osbourne's label? How did that all come about? That was um, basically more of that positive thinking and just going out and going for it. Like I said, the manager we had at the time had gone to New York and um, he had two names for us. He had Dave Kirby, who was an agent who passed away. Um who at the time was the agent for all these heavy bands um, and a guy named Alex Guerrero who worked with Todd Singerman, who was Sepultura without Max's manager for the first Sepultura record. And he was Lemmy's manager for Motorhead. So those are the two names we had. And we moved to, we moved to LA and we 
And the manager at the time was just trying to get us out of his hair. He was like, oh, I think you guys should move to LA. That's where things are. We were like, okay, we're going to do it. And we did it. When we got there, we started playing on, on the, the sunset scene. So we, you know, we played a club called the coconut teaser. That's not there anymore. We played, um, the troubadour, which used to have metal Mondays. And we played on one of those and we played at, um, you know, the Roxy, the whiskey, all we did all of those. And the first big break that we got was, um, well, we ended up meeting our, our first show in the States was with, uh, motorhead. I'll never forget this. It was with Motorhead, the Dropkick Murphys, and Hatebreed. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And we drove from Montreal to Seattle to do the show because we were moving to LA. So we went with the gear. We drove all the way to Seattle and we lied. We went across the border and we said, we're going to record in Vermont. So we had a letter saying we're going to record in the studio with all our gear. And Kevin and I just deadhead drove all the way to Seattle. And our other, our guitar player, our bass player and drummer at the time had taken the bus to LA and had gotten, found an apartment and um, got that part set up and they had gotten jobs valet parking. So we, we, we met them in Seattle. They took the bus to Seattle from LA. We met them there. We rehearsed for two days in Seattle and then we played. We showed up to the venue and we were first of four, which you know what that's like. And basically the agent had done us a favor. He got us on these two shows, Seattle and Portland. We show up, we're excited as hell. We get there and they're like, you're not playing. What do you mean we're not playing? Well, yeah, it's, you're not playing. I mean, it's not happening. No way. Yeah. And we were fucking floored. We're like, what do you mean? And I'll never forget this. As long as I live, word got to Lemmy. Lemmy got off of his bus and went and spoke to the promoter and said, these boys drove all the way from Canada to play this fucking show. If they don't play, we're not playing. And they put us on at doors and we played for 20 minutes. But I'll never forget that. That's that's an unbelievable story. It was yeah. amazing. And Did you then, get to meet him afterwards and thank him? Yeah, of or, course. Yeah. After we were downstairs backstage with him and he was listening to the Dropkick Murphys. He was like, you know, these are nice boys, but the fucking music makes my teeth itch. <laughs> like he didn't like, he never liked the bands that he toured with. Really? No, okay. Nah, he's Lemmy, you know, he's a fucking God. <laughs> so the next day we played in Portland and it was a much better experience. And we went to LA and we weren't on the LA show, but we went to the, the gig because we knew the guys now. And we met a guy named Todd Singerman and we said to him, Hey, uh, we're friends with, Dave Kirby, and we'd like to, you know, talk to you about managing us. And he said, yeah, here's, here's my number. And we ended up meeting Alex Guerrero who worked with him and Alex became our manager. And, um, Alex was the guy that started to get things in motion for us. And had, there's a really sad ending to that relationship, unfortunately, because he ended up fucking robbing us for 20 K. Oh, but, um, which really hurt because he was our champion, Oh, but he ended up getting us, um, you know, we had started playing some shows in LA and, and he got wind of us and he says, okay, I'm going to see what's going on with you guys. I'll, I'll, I'll come see you play. And he ended up came, coming to see us play. And the first big gig that he got us on was he got us opening up for system of the down system did uh tour of the sunset strip show, uh, tour. They played the Whiskey, the Roxy, and the Troubadour. And three nights in a row. I heard they had like a crazy work ethic back then. They used to like have a party bus that would go around and pick up all their fans. The oh, fans yeah. would just pay a bit and there was a keg in the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they, well, ideas, like they, a, back in the day in that time era. They drove, um, their fans would come in from Glendale. That's it, yeah. Because they had a huge um, Armenian. Armenian population yeah. uh, fans, you know, because they were like all Armenian band. And I mean, they were really, really popular. And they, yeah, they would bust their fans in and they were, they were just real hard workers and great guys. 
super great guys. And I remember when we did that show, it was huge. I mean, we played the whiskey with them and it was packed, 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 like jammed. Like everybody wanted to come to these shows and seeing system in a club was pretty impressive. They were, you know, they were like a force to be reckoned with. So that was a really big break for us. And then, you know, we started getting on better shows and all these labels wanted to sign us. I mean, I, this guy named Steve Richards wanted to sign us who was Slipknot's manager at the time. He's passed away too. And he, he worked for Epic and he wanted us. I mean, I remember he literally, it was one of those guys that got up on his desk and jumped up and down and said, I'm going to, you know, like, this is amazing. Like we got in his office and he was blasting our EP and he wanted to sign us and he was jumping up on, up and down on his desk. Do you think that you were like in that last era of, we were, you know, labels fighting over bands? Yeah. Cause we had Epic and then we had uh, Tim Devine at Columbia who was no slouch. I mean, this guy signed train. He signed like uh, huge bands and he came to see us play too. When we played, um, we opened up for, uh, Papa Roach at the was it Papa? I think it was Papa Roach at the House of Blues, and I remember he came to the show and um, he like we had sat in with him and he, he we we turned down Steve Richards and Epic and then we Columbia really wanted us and we were we came home for Christmas and we were signing to Columbia. It was a done deal, and then we went back. We played that show in January with Papa Roach. And the night before we played the LA show, Sharon Osbourne had flown to Vegas to see us play with Papa Roach. And there was nobody at the Vegas show. It was like 15 people there, but she was there watching us. And after the show, she said, boys, I want to offer you to be the first band on our label. And we want to give you the Ozfest." The first band on Sharon's label. I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. yeah. And we said yes. And then right after that, we played LA and Tim Devine came to see us play. And I remember him being there and we avoided him because we were like, oh, we're shining. We're going to shine. <laughs> and like, we, we didn't even think about the, this guy wanted to develop our career, but we were like, no, we were, we were like, we were such huge Aussie fans. So we we're like, fuck that. We want to be on Aussie's label. <laughs> we did. And it was, it was a great experience. And you were on those like early Oz fests, plural we or just one? 2000. We did 2000, all of 2000. And then 2001. And it's funny because you talk about the, the jammed in edge gig. And that was, I'll always remember that gig. Cause that was the last gig that we played knowing that we were doing Ozfest 2001. And I remember we had been, we had been touring in Texas. They flew us in for that show, paid us a ridiculous amount of money to play. And then we flew back to Texas to meet our, our bus and finish the rest of the tour. And two days later we got a call saying that we weren't doing Ozfest. They wanted to pull us off of the road and they wanted us to go and write another record. And we were very aggressive at that time and we were like, well, we sent demos and our managers like send demos and have them refuse. And once they refuse, cause they get first right of refusal, it would be free and you can go shop for another deal. And that's what we ended up doing because we didn't know, but the label folded. Oh, okay. The label was folded. They would have just held your record. Yeah. Indefinitely. Would, well, they were, they were actually cool. They, they released us. So it wasn't an issue, but, um, we were really disappointed, but they gave us, they let us do Ozfest 2001. We did the Toronto show. Okay. And, that was cool. But at the time we kind of felt rejected and we, you know, it was like, it was the start of us being very bitter because we're like, you know, and you know how the business is. I mean, it's a brutal business. Um, but it was, uh, it was, it was a fun time. I mean, I, and I have great relationships with that office still. Like one of my best friends works for Sharon, John, and he's a great dude. One of my best, best buds. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm so forever grateful for that opportunity. I mean, just to do some of those things was, I mean, we toured with Pantera every fucking day. Like we did a whole summer that Ozfest, Pan, like some of my favorite bands were on that Ozfest. Like Pantera was on it. Queens of the Stone Age were opening up the main stage every day on Rated R. I mean, like it was just it was magic, you know. Craziest story from that Ozfest? Uh, probably Pantera. Um, walking by, they had these 
mobile, they weren't even mobile homes. They were like those containers that they would just drop that were dressing rooms and walking by and hearing all this crazy noise. And then that had a little window and just a chair just flew out of the window <laughs> and, I was, and I almost hit me and I looked over and, and Zach Wild and Dimebag were tearing that trailer apart, just tearing it apart. And I was just like, wow, that is insane. Pretty much that for me, I'll never forget that. And I mean, those guys just were, it was crazy how much they partied. It was insane. It was authentic. It was the image represented that we all see. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, it was, and, it was, and it was the beginning of the end for the band pretty much because I think two years after they, they, they disbanded, but that was, was pretty crazy. Um, being my parents coming to see, uh, Ozfest and Sharon greeting my mom and bringing my mom and my stepdad to the side of the stage, but not like the side of the stage where everybody else stood, like where Sharon stood with Tony, who was Ozzy's assistant and like being like, and like the look on my, my stepdad's face, like he still talks about that. And that was a pretty special moment being able to bring them to, to watch the show. And I mean, going out and singing with Pantera every night, doing this love, like all the people. Did you? I had no idea you did that. Yeah. All, all of us, like there's a bunch of people from the That's tour. That so come cool. out and do. Yeah. There's just a lot of memories with that band. Um, and the Queens of the Stone Age memories were good. Cause we were, we ended up developing a relationship with Josh and talking with him a lot. And cause he knew how big of a Kai's fan I was. So I remember him coming off the bus and, he was like a little disheveled and he would go into catering and I, and I, I was talking to him and, and I think he said, I think I, from what I remember, cause a lot of the times these stories end up being bigger in your head than they were. But I remember him saying, if I brought him coffee, he would tell him, if, if you bring me a coffee, I'll tell you whatever you want about Caius. <laughs> and I, and I did, and I ended up chatting with him quite a bit and I would always be there if time permitted on the side of the stage, watching them every fucking day. And no matter how, whatever, whatever, whatever shape they were in, they were amazing. Because hmm. Ozfest is like a rotation, right? Yeah. Or was it like a lottery? No, no, it was a rotation. Basically, if you were on the main, if the, the main stage was always the same, but to open up the main stage, the bands would basically go, they would rotate. So they would start off, like, say, first band on the second stage, right up until opening for the headliner of the second stage, who was Soulfly. You would be like, you would go up up until like that point and then you would rotate over to opening up the main stage oh really which was kind of the shittiest slot but it was still cool because you're on this you know on the stage on, on but on it's so list. early but. so early that nobody and you know but um yeah it was always a rotation but, you, but i mean you never didn't play in front of a, we were always playing in front of five to ten thousand people always the biggest one i think was somerset wisconsin we played the main stage and there was thirty thousand people oh, wow. it was insane yeah. it was massive how do you keep your voice healthy for the radio I'm, I've been blessed with a, a pretty healthy voice. I mean, I don't smoke. Um, I don't drink, really. And uh, I'm, I'm somewhat healthy, so. Yeah, because you're on the radio five nights a week, I want to say. Five nights a week, five hours. But, I mean, I'm not talking for five hours. I probably, you know, something like this is more. Work. It's more yeah, work yeah. than. But, um, but, no, I'm very conscious of it, and, and I, I try to stay as healthy as I can. And it's weird. I, I don't get a lot of throat infections or sinus stuff. It always hits my ears. My okay. ears are like my Achilles heel. I'll get ear infections and stuff and sore ears, but I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I don't, um, I, I'd like to say I have a, a, a secret, you know, like I, I warm Concoction. up. Concoction. I yeah. don't. There's no warm ups in the, the show booth. No, I just go and I turn the mic on and I, I, I'm, I'm pretty lucky, but I, I don't, I, I don't sing a lot and I'm a lot more conscious. I mean, I don't sing a lot with slaves. So I'm a lot more conscious of when I do sing and I do do gigs. And if my voice is sore, I'm like, ah, oh, man, I should really be careful. Cause I don't want to screw up, you know, my livelihood now. Do you, what do you do in situations like that? 
just rest, you know, rest. Um, I had one, uh, the worst I've ever done with my voice recently was we, we opened up for head PE at Fafun recently in like last couple of years. And I drank a shitload of Red Bull, mm. which I never do anymore. Heartburn. Heartburn. And it dried me right out. Mm. And instead of drinking water, I drank, I think I drank three or four Red Bulls that day. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, I haven't done this since like 2000. And, uh, I remember that night I couldn't talk. I was like, uh, after the show and I just dehydrated the whole apparatus. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't do that again. Cause it is your livelihood. Yeah. I gotta be careful. I gotta be careful. How did the transition from front man to radio occur? Very, um, kind of a happy accident. I, I mean, I quit slaves when I had my uh, slaves on dope disbanded in 2003 or 2004 2004 when i uh, when my son was born about three months before he was born four months before he was born i uh i told are we gonna try this one now sure yeah no but i don't want to cut you off i was just saying okay no 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 because no, i because i kind of want to yeah. have something <laughs> we're, we're moving on we're on to uh le trou noir that but that that ipa was great i enjoyed it yeah yeah it, it, it was refreshing it, it felt like a real beer yeah yeah, yeah. i mean I, I think what i like about this company is that I don't feel like I'm having a fake beer. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm having a beer, but you know, it's, it's not alcoholic. So I, I, I really enjoy it. I enjoy it. So and I, I would imagine f- for somebody that's a connoisseur, it's kind of like having a nice glass of wine. You don't want to get drunk. You just want to enjoy the taste of it. And that's what I like about non-alcoholics that are, that are quality. You know, for, for designated drivers or for, yeah, like I can have one of these and I don't feel, you know, and, and I get a lot of drinkers always have that. Oh, poor you you can't drink. And I'm like, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like it's nice to have to, I don't want to say to be a part of, or, or, or but it's, it's nice to have that option. Mm-hmm. It is nice to have that Was option. it hard for you at the beginning? So did you have to like lose your friends? Uh, I lost my entire, yeah, my okay. entire. And couldn't it, be around. I, you know, a lot of this because they didn't want to be around me. I never had an okay. issue, I, but I would, I remember trying to get together with some of my friends after I sobered up and it was just, we were just too different. Okay. Wow. It was a lot of drugs too. So yeah, it was just a different, you know, well drugs. I mean, in a month it won't be a drug, it won't be an illegal drug, but I smoked a lot of pot too. And that was, um, yeah, I just, I couldn't. And you quit everything. Yeah. yeah sober. Yeah. 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 yeah straight edge. sober. Yeah. I hate that label. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like the straight edge. I love the idea of being straight edge, but there's other things that go with that lifestyle of straight edge that I mean, the extreme is just too. It's like when I stopped eating meat, my wife and I were, you know, you're excited about it. So we had a wedding and, and we had, we had lined up Chuck Hughes to be our caterer. And I was like, Chuck Hughes is our caterer. I'm like, he's doing us a favor. And I remember we canceled with him cause we went vegetarian and we ended, ended up getting credissance to cater it. So we went from having Chuck Hughes to a vegan raw wedding. And I mean, people were, there, there were people that really enjoyed it. And there were other people like my stepdad ordered Domino's halfway through our wedding. I think Domino's box came in and he dropped it on his knees, gave pizza to everybody. Cause he was just like, I, I, I can't, I, that is, it was funny. But we <laughs> laughed. We didn't, we were, I guess that's how you have to handle it in situations yeah, we laughed like that. Yeah. Cause he was just like, I'm going to order a pizza. <laughs> and we thought it was funny, but I wouldn't probably now I wouldn't do that. I would be more c- conscious of our guests. I'd be like, okay, well why don't we just have a vegan know, option, a vegan option, a vegetarian yeah. option. But even the vegan word, um, I mean, I'm more vegan than not, but I just, the whole label and the, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to preach. I would rather just lead by example. I completely agree with that. You know, um, 
I would rather show a meat eater some cool recipes and have them go. And that's what we've done. My wife and I have, have showed people stuff, have um, given them some options, and they've been like, wow. And slowly but surely, more and more of our friends are starting to go, well, you know, we're eating less meat. And we're doing this. and But I don't want to be preachy. I hate that. I hate that. So it's kind of the same thing with alcohol and you know, I don't like to like live and let live. Like you do your, you do you, I'll do me. And, and if you need any information, I'm more than happy to give it to you. But you know, like there's nothing worse than, than uh, there's nothing worse than a new vegetarian vegan that just is like going out there and, you know, like picketing. And, oh, yeah. and I, I've been that guy, but I mean, it's just cause you're excited. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like when you first start dating someone, like all you want to do is think about them and talk about them and people around you are like nauseated so <laughs> it's kind of the same thing okay turunwar. yes the turunwar. It's a stout with chocolate flavors reminiscent of toasted nuts with subtle coffee aromas totally smells like iced coffee mm, that's good it's, it's surprisingly good that's really really good yeah. that's really good i've we've had it poured and on the table since the beginning of this so it's warmed up a bit which is mm. how i enjoy my stouts there, but it's refreshing it's nice Radio host. Yeah. How did that start? Um, you were they, saying that you quit slaves when your son was born? Yeah. So when my son was born, I decided that I didn't want to be on the road anymore. I always said to myself, if, I, if I'm going to be that guy who's going, to, um, who's going to be on the road touring, I can't do both. I got to be a dad or, or one or the other. So I, uh, I, I, just, I guess I kind of rose up to the occasion and it was also a time to change. You know, like music had just been, there's been so many disappointments and uh, we, we, we got on another label. We had signed to a subsidiary of MCA and then MCA folded. So the subsidiary lost their distribution. And so they started, because we they were an independent, they started licensing us to different territories. And we had a label in France that was really into us that sent Kevin and I to France to do a bunch of press. And then we ended up going back and we did a few shows and it went really well. And they wanted us to come back and do like a three-month European tour. And that's what I... I quit right before that. So that kind of was like a bit of a, you know, uh, a soft spot for the guys because I, I left. And I think they, from what Kevin tell, tells me, they went to the label and they said, well, we're going to come, but we're going to have another singer. And they're like, no, it's like, it's either the full band or we don't want you guys to come. And it just didn't work out. So, um, yeah, I left and I ended up working. I got some menial jobs just doing whatever. And I didn't do music for five years. I just said, no, I'm done. I was burnt out. And you know what it's like when you're 11 years, when you tour for 11 years, nonstop, that's all you're thinking about is just this band, this band, this band. It's nice to just get away from it. And I was really like, I didn't miss it at all. There's nothing about it that I missed. I mean, I just, I started just being a civilian and it was great. You know, I had a job. I, I wasn't necessarily happy in my life, um, but that was other reasons. But I really, really enjoyed not being in the band and when I did come back to it when Kevin and I started chatting again and I came back to music I, I enjoyed it I came back with a completely different perspective but the radio host thing happened I was um, at the time I was working with my dad in his trucking company and I didn't really like what I was doing but I was trying to provide for my family at the time and I got wind from somebody that they were doing this they needed an overnight person on Virgin so for fun, when Kevin and I were we were working on it, the, like the new Slaves on Dope album, uh, I did a I did a demo, a radio demo, and I sent it into my buddy who worked at Virgin, and I uh, I said, okay, here's my demo, like you know, can you pass it on? And a couple of weeks went by, and he messaged me back, and he goes, they're actually looking for someone to show him. I don't know why you heard Virgin. I was like, oh, cool. I didn't, I didn't think about show him. 
And I knew too tall, but I didn't even think about Shom. So he says, I'm going to give it to the PD at Shom. And um, PD at Shom heard it, program director, and called me. And he's like, we'd like to you to come in for uh, for a read. So I came in and uh, they offered me a job. And I was like, whoa. And I was working with my dad full time. So the idea of going and working there full time was a bit of a daunting task because they wanted me to do overnights. And I did it. I did overnights for a year and a half. And then I finally left my dad's. And oh, you, you were doing both I was jobs. doing both for a year and a half, yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 So it was, uh, it, was a big, it was a big challenge. But... And I ended up going, you know, there for half the money like that I was making. But I was just like, it's not about money. It's about, it's about being happy. It's more important than money. So, uh, so yeah, it was, it was a good experience. I mean, it was, it was, I was really lucky to, to, to get the opportunity. But once I had the the platform and got in, I just, I was like, no, this is what I want to do. Was it something you ever had in your mind that you wanted to be a DJ host? Like a radio host? The only time I, I really liked radio. I really liked radio when I would go and do interviews with the band we would be in the station i'd be like this is awesome i really like this and i would always have fun when i would do the interviews with the hosts i always liked being interviewed and, ch- and chatting and and i was said i could do this like, i think i could do this and i remember um I, I guest hosted a couple of times at different stations and would go do like an hour and be like this is awesome i really really like this and i like the whole environment and but i never thought i would no i never like went to like broadcast school or communications or how much freedom do you have with what you get to play we have, we have a music department, so they, they pretty much pick. But I have, a, um, I have the 90s at 9, which is an hour, um, which I have a lot of input. When we first started building that feature, I put a lot of input into it. And we have the big, shiny new song of the week, which we usually decide amongst us ourselves, which is the, another feature on my show. So, But besides that, I mean, you know, Shom's got a, a format, and it's, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all generations of rock. It's pretty much like a hybrid. Which you, which is unique. Like we're the only station in Canada that have that, where you have old and new. Um, what I really like is that we've kind of gone back to supporting CanCon, but the newer CanCon. So n- instead of resting on the old CanCon, we we're, we're playing a lot more new bands, and and that to me kills two birds with one stone because we're helping local, and at the same time we're fulfilling the CanCon quota. I want to clarify something, confirm something. I I feel like this is my my facts are true. Mm-hmm. The Franklin Electric, mm-hmm. did you help get them signed? Mm-hmm. So I want to thank you for that. I did. I, I'm a You'll, huge fan. Great, great yeah. guys too. Yeah. Um, great guys. I they came into my studio and they were. Uh, I had gotten the demo, and I loved the demo, and I invited them to come in, and we were we. I, I gave it to our music department. And I was like, you know, you really should check these guys out. Like, oh, yeah, they sent us stuff. And uh, they added it as a feature. Big, shiny new song of the week. So they came in and I messaged friends from Indica. And I said, dude, I, I was on Facebook Live and I go, I've, I was on Facebook. I go, tune into Shom right now. They're, this, there's this band that you need to listen to. And uh, he was messaging me the whole time they were playing. He was like, these guys are amazing. They sound like Mumford. They're great. And he was really into them. And uh, yeah, they ended up signing to them. So I was really, really happy and proud of that. So there's an interesting like movement going through Montreal with that style of new Montreal band sound. Yeah, yeah it's like, like another with wave. the Damn Truth, Half Moon Run. Yeah, like Black half, Electric. You know, Half Moon Two are another band that I uh, I really take great pride in, and knowing that I helped them out. And did you help them out as well? Yeah, I got two gold records right huh? there. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> they they uh, they. 
I, I, they played on my show and they had already had, they were already on their way, but we played them at show. Um, it took a while for us. I kicked the, kicked the album under our old program director's door, the CD. And I was like, you got, and I put a note, I go listen to this. And, and it took a while, but then finally they were like, wow, this is really good. And it went from, we have this feature called classic vinyl Sunday, where we'll take a classic album. It, whether it's the anniversary of that album or that artist is coming to town, we'll play the album from front to back on vinyl. And we ended up playing uh, Dark Eyes, which is the first Half Moon Run album from front to back. And that was almost a year and a half after I'd kicked it under the door. So I was pretty proud about that. So when they gave me a gold record for Dark Eyes, and um, I got one for, for Sun Leaves Me On too, but I, I was very, very proud. Because to me, it's it symbolized a lot. It said, okay, I never got one of these with my band, but I can help another band get to where they want to go with the influence that I have. And that meant a lot, you know, it goes, and it goes back to helping people. I mean, it's, it's important to, it's important to help people, you know, cause if you're always like me, 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 that you never get the whole, the way the energy flows, like it's got to go back and forth. And, uh, yeah, when I got that gold record from, that was a proud moment for me to be able to know that I helped somebody out. Well, thank you for that too, because I am yeah. a well, huge, huge fan. Both Franklin of are great. And Franklin are, do, are doing great, and and they're they're still they still haven't written that record, but it's coming. It's mm. coming because I mean, John's a great songwriter, and he's a great dude too. My my father works the night shift. Okay, and uh, he works like in a plant factory plant, and they listen to show him every night. Yeah, and when you sign off, you always say good night. You have like a tagline that you always say. I'm really like, see ya. Or like, good night, something, something. And they always say good night to you. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> good night, Jason. That's awesome. Him and his coworkers. That's awesome. Well, I, you know, it, it, the thing with radio is that it's, it's serendipitous and it's live. It's, there's very few things nowadays that are that live. There's actually nothing. And that's what the, the attractive thing about radio is that you can, you can instantly connect with someone. And, you know, it's, there's not a lot of sp- places in the city to listen to rock on the radio there's actually none so we're the only game in town but i find you know if you if you listen to radio all week long you're going to hear the same stuff i mean that's just the formula of radio but i find that what, what i love about show is that i grew up on show um it's always been here it's it was important to me coming up because it was my first real my first real um you know, uh, exposure to, to rock was, was through the radio was, was through show. So I remember listening to guys like Benoit Dufresne and, um, and guys like too tall and, 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 you know, it meant it was, it was important to, to listen to these guys. Like I, I remember listening to a guy like Aaron Rand on the radio and, and working with him in the same building now at CJD. It's crazy. You know, it's, it's, I, it never grows. It never gets old for me. You know, it's very exciting. It's, it's, uh, I was very proud when, Someone I knew was on the radio. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and you know, it, and it's and it's it's fun for me because I've been able to get a couple of people that I know on on air, like Hal. Um, yeah, shout out to Hal. Yeah, yeah Hal's got a, a permanent shift now. And That's amazing. Yeah. It's it's crazy when I think about it because Hal was. I just met Hal because Rob, my bass player in Slaves, um, was in the show like our parade band when we would play in the parade and Rob couldn't make it one year. So he goes, I got my buddy Hal, who's a great bass player. And I, I met Hal and I loved Hal. I was like, wow, I love this guy. And 
Hal had a band called Eagle Tears and I was like, well, I'm going to help you. I'm going to try to help you out. So myself, Heidi and Joff, JF from um, Avenco, we, we, we kind of said, let's take these guys under our wing and try to see what we can do to help them out. And, and we helped them as far as we could, but then the band kind of imploded. But Mountain Dust now. He's a part yeah, of Yeah, he's Mountain. in Mountain Dust, yeah. yeah. But, um, but you know, Eagle Tears had gotten, we, we helped get them some shows. They opened up for a couple of bands. They they um, they uh, got airplay on show. They, they, they were starting to get some stuff going. And Hal was working at a call center. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, he's like, well, you know, I got it. I was like, well, why don't you try to get you a job in here as an op? And I got him in the door, but he did everything else. I mean, he, he started doing demos when he was opping, like he would switch the mic into audition and he would record a bunch of demos. And he was giving the demos nonstop to, um, to the management and they were, you know, they would listen and, and, and he, he didn't stop for like two and a half years, three years. He just kept going, kept going. And finally he was just in the right place in the right time. And he he did overnights for free i think for like 20 he did 20 overnights for free and just worked on it and they gave him airtime they said turn on the mic and and you know somebody left recently and he got a permanent shift and it's great well, really, congrats to hal yeah i'm He's really a happy guy. for hal hal's a great guy and he deserves great guy it. sick sick bass player yeah, and a massive dude like we always call him like, <laughs> he's like the lost son of too tall he is very tall <laughs> he's super tall when did your love affair with comic books begin that's young young my grandfather took me to um a uh i remember him taking me to the the corner store like the dep and they had that little turning you know thing with the comic books and i remember buying spider-man comics and just being obsessed obsessed and watching the spider-man cartoon um yeah it started from uh, from as from as old as i can remember and i remember getting those big treasury editions the big big ones there was a Batman one called Batman Strangest Cases and um, seeing Neil, Neil Adams art. And I remember getting Superman versus Muhammad Ali, which was like another big one of those treasury editions. And, it, you know, Neil Adams art was really, really influential. And then and once I started reading X-Men, the, the whole John Byrne, Chris Claremont X-Men run was just phenomenal. And what still speaks to you as an adult? I don't get time to read now. I really don't get time to read now. So, uh, I like a lot of that stuff still. I mean, I haven't, to be honest, like the last thing I think I read was I started reading the, the Watchmen. There's like a Watchmen reboot. But I, I again, like I, I make the mistake of, of trying to get, you know, like the first issue will come out and I'll go get it and then I won't have the five issues after. And I got to remember now, just wait a year till the trade comes out and then I'll pick it up and read it all. But I try to read when I can, but I just, I just don't have time. You're a pretty busy dude. Yeah, yeah. I got to make time, though. Like, instead of being on my phone, I should be opening up, you know. I read Ready Player One with my son last year, and that was fun. It was the first book we read together because we knew the movie was coming out. We read that together. Like Great, read, great book. Yeah. It was a great book, I, and I, I totally enjoyed reading that. It was, like, right up my alley. Mm, so, absolutely. And the problem is you find you read a book like that, and we were looking for the next book to read together, and I didn't want it to be a dud. So... At one point I was like, okay, I think because my son really wants to read The Shining and then Dr. Sleep because he wants to know, you know, but the, because the, I, I showed him The Shining and he, he tripped out. So we were going to do that and then he saw the size of the book and he's like, this is so big. I don't it's know intimidating. I, it's, yeah. yeah, it is. It is. It's like, like you see it. Mm. Like it's an intimidating book. Yeah. Or The Stand. Or. Yeah. But I love, but I, I mean, I grew up loving Stephen King. I Me mean, as well. I read all his stuff when I was a kid. Armada, which is also from the author. Is it good? Did you read it? 
It's good. It's like a watered-down version okay. of Ready Player One, but it's an easy transition okay, if you're looking for another one. That's what we. That's that was our first instinct because we saw. You know, there's like a little um, preview of it at the end of the book. Yeah, and it's also video gameish. Okay, yeah. more so, video gameish and less. Do you know that Ernest Klein wrote Fanboys? No, but that I love the, that movie. Yeah, that yeah. was the first movie that he did was Fanboys. I know. I love that movie. Love Fanboys. Underrated. Totally underrated. Yeah. No one remembers it, and it's a great movie. Favorite superhero. Uh, the Hulk. Favorite villain? Um, hmm. Tough to say. I mean, I really like Deathstroke. Um, I like the Punisher. He's a bit of an anti, anti-hero. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, probably, probably Deathstroke. At the time, I really, really liked him. Best adaptation... Uh, movie superhero movie Watchmen. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Really. Yeah. Okay. Even though they fucked up the ending, I still think it was it was it caught to me. It captured the tone of the of the graphic novel. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. You? Um, <laughs> I'm not a super comic okay. book fan. Yeah, but I, I just I, was just interested in Watchmen came out. I mean, it was really. It was kind of early in the game for the superhero. I mean, it's not part of this whole, it's one that gets forgotten a lot, but I really encourage people to go back and watch Watchmen because Watchmen's really pretty, pretty badass. It's a dark movie. Yeah. yeah. And it still holds up and they're doing the HBO show now. Are they? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. That's going to be great. So that's going to be good. I mean, I'm a big Watchmen fan. That's probably my favorite graphic novel. It's, it's pretty, have you ever read Watchmen? No, no. Oh, you need to. It's, it's special. I have an addictive personality, so... Oh, you you got to be careful? Once, once I get into something, I get into it heavily. But Watchmen's good. It's a good read. Oh, it's a great read. Well, I want to thank you, Jason. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add. No, this is fun. Something that uh, you want to promo coming up? or I mean, we have Slaves on Dope. have a new EP coming out, uh, Covers EP. Covers Volume 2. I should talk about that. There you go. When when uh, when When's that coming out? When I go to do the final two vocal <laughs> sessions and that <laughs> Kevin will mix it. But uh, probably, I would say October. October, yeah, we're just going to work out a digital cover and we're just going to put it up digitally. And then we have, um, we're going to put a new record out in 2019. We have about seven songs written. So once that's done, we'll, we'll put that up. Awesome. Looking forward to hearing it. Cool. Thank you very much for uh, coming on to Vox and Hops and uh, drinking some beers with me early in the morning. Non-alcoholics. Non-alcoholic beers with me in the morning. <laughs> I greatly appreciate it very much. Cool. All the best. Awesome. Thanks. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thank you so much for listening. That was Vox and Hops, episode number 10. Jason Rockman, so cool, such a nice dude, so smart, so much to say. To realize at such a young age that you're, you're, you're struggling with alcoholism and you just overcome that, and from there his life has just gotten better and better, and he just constantly, constantly keeps working. This guy... Such a hustler, such a hustler, a big inspiration for mine. I see, um, you know, all the hard work leads somewhere, so it inspires me to keep, uh, you know, keep my head down and focus on my goals and move forward. So thank you for that, Jason. On the next podcast, I sit down with a very longtime old friend of mine. I sit down with Chris Kells, the basis of The Agonist, and he's the owner of Front to Back Visuals, which is a video company. He uh, made many, many music videos for Cryptopsy. He is the go-to video director here in Montreal for a lot of the metal bands that are uh, coming up around here. Um, I've known Kells for probably longer than anyone that I've had on the podcast as of yet, and uh, it led for a funny conversation. All that on Vox and Hops, episode number 11. 
as always, if you have any suggestions, you want to sponsor the show, you know anybody that would be interested in sponsoring the show, send me an email at matt at voxandhops.com. All the best. Thank you so much for listening. Cheers. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.